0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, my guest is Dr. Viet Thanh Nguyen of the University of Southern California, where he is the Harold Arnold Chair of English and Professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity. Professor Nguyen is the author of several books, including Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America, and Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. About a year ago, I got to chat with him about Nothing Ever Dies here on the New Books Network, so check the archives for that interview. He also edited Trans-Pacific Studies, Framing an Emerging Field with Janet Hoskins. He has a collection of short stories called The Refugees, and an edited volume called uh, The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. He also co wrote Chicken of the Sea, but I suspect his co author Allison did most of the heavy lifting on that one. Uh, this is a children's book that was illustrated by the amazing Ti Bui and her son uh, Hien Bui Stafford. Today we'll be talking about his two novels, The Sympathizer and The Committed. The former won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and definitely contributed to Professor Wen uh, winning both a Guggenheim and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Congratulations. The second is the sequel to the first, carrying the story from Southern California and Southern Vietnam to Paris, France, by way of a refugee boat in the South China Sea. Viet Tan Nguyen, welcome back to New Books in History.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me again.
1: Yeah. So um, again, I'm I'm a big fan. I I fanboyed out on you hard last time, but I'm hopefully I'm not gonna. uh, I'll be a bit more professional this time. (laughs) But again, it's 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 great to uh, to chat with you. and I want to start with a question I've been dying to ask you, and this, this will be my big fanboy question here. Um, can you suggest a beverage pairing for these novels? Last summer, you tweeted out a series of cocktails paired with various books and um, uh, drinks and and uh, figure heavily in the novels. Um, I loved the guilt and shame cocktail in The Committed, but I definitely do not want to try that one. Um what would you serve with the sympathizer and uh, with the committed? Oh, I think that, that answer
2: is very simple. If you want to be genuinely authentic, we're not really mixologists in Vietnamese culture. We basically drink beer, wine, and cognac. That's, that's the, the magic trio. So if you want beer and you want the authentic thing, try to find your Bami Ba or 33 beer. Um, if you can't find that, then tiger beer is a good substitute because that's what I drank a lot of when I was in Saigon. And if you can't find tiger beer, then just a Singaporean get, beer. Yeah. Singaporean beer, Singaporean beer, you know, beer. I mean, obviously okay. the Vietnamese themselves being in Vietnam, they may not have a lot of, uh, fetishization of Bami beer because they can get it anytime. So tiger was more popular and beyond that, like Heineken, everybody wanted to drink Heineken when I was there. So that's easy enough. And if you want to drink wine, take any red wine and put an ice cube in it, because that's how the Vietnamese like to drink it in tropical Vietnam. But really, the the, the best thing to do is get yourself a bottle of cognac. And there's many wonderful varieties of cognac out there. But for whatever reason, the Vietnamese really like a couple of different brands, maybe due to effective marketing uh, in Vietnam or in the diaspora. And those brands are Remy Martin and Hennessy. And if you want to do the bargain route, I mean, bargain is a relative term, but uh, either either one, VSOP, it's about $35 a bottle, is what you typically get at a Vietnamese wedding. But if you want to get real fancy, you have to get the XO level of either Remy or Hennessy. That'll run you about $100 to $150 a bottle. And if you go into a lot, a lot of Vietnamese homes, they will prominently display their bottle of XO on a shelf, spotlit, behind glass, it's always a full bottle, and I've never figured out whether it's actually full of the liquor or a substitute after they've drunk the very expensive liquor. Um, but I, I quite enjoy a snifter of any of that stuff uh, when 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 I when I'm nostalgic. But finally, if you want to mix it, then you know you do the Vietnamese wedding thing, which is it, it, and basically it's a highball, but we never called it that because we didn't know it was called a highball. But you pour some cognac into a, a glass with some ice, and then you top it off with seven up or Coca-Cola and it goes down
1: real easy. Okay. Those are solid pairings. I, I started, uh, the committed with a bit of, um, port and then, uh, I, I tweeted that and I think you shamed me saying I would need something stronger. So I finished with, um, uh, Oban's little Bay, uh, Not bad. I like for that. the last couple chapters. Uh, I thought that was a, that was a good pairing. That was my, I'm an amateur at this. Um, uh, let me ask you a bit more serious question. Um, and you, you you brought up uh, some aspects of the um, Viet Q or Vietnamese diaspora culture. And I, I was wondering about uh, if you could say a few words on the politics of the community, especially um, the significance of a date. Um, this podcast set to be released on April 30th, and this is a significant date in Vietnamese history and in the Vietnamese diaspora. Could you say a few words on April 30th? Sure.
2: Well, I have to talk about it in the Vietnamese American context because I'm not sure how significant April 30th is to other diasporic Vietnamese communities in other countries. And certainly in France, uh, since you know the committed is set in France, there there is a divided sense of politics there that doesn't exist as much in the United States. The United States, deeply anti-communist country, welcomes Vietnamese refugees fleeing from a suddenly communist Vietnam. And the Vietnamese refugees who came here were were almost completely anti-communist. Now that has changed a little bit over the years because now, you know, we have a younger generation that's that's perhaps less attached to anti-communism, and we have Vietnamese immigrants who have come here for a variety of reasons and are perhaps less hostile to communism in some cases as well. But the overwhelming tenor of the community is anti-communist, at least in the public sense. And so April 30th has become a really significant landmark anniversary for a large number of the Vietnamese American community who call it Black April. I'm not fond of this term, but it's a term meant to commemor- meant to signify that the date of April 30th is the end of the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam, a day of infamy for these Vietnamese refugees. And they use April 30th as a way of commemorating the Republic of Vietnam and and in many ways celebrating the Vietnamese diaspora in the United States as the de facto cultural capital of this, uh, this lost nation. And so, especially if you go to the heart of this capital, which is Little Saigon in Orange County, where there's an entire Vietnam War Memorial dedicated both to American soldiers and South Vietnamese soldiers. On April 30th, there's usually a big ritual uh, commemoration with many people, men and women, coming out in full military uniform to commemorate this this date in this, this country. So it's a very meaningful um, uh, commemoration for many Vietnamese people who feel that they've been erased in Vietnam, which they have been, and forgotten in the United States, which they have been.
1: Yeah, and that that resonates with um, with something that we saw happen a few months ago on January sixth, when the um, the the Trump mob uh, stormed the Capitol, and um, you know those of us who are watching it real time who who know Vietnam and Vietnamese history were initially surprised, um, but maybe not that surprised after all to see the South Vietnamese flag, the Republic of the flag of Vietnam, being flown in the crowds. Um, um, as part of the sort of, uh, you know, anti-left, anti-communist sort of, you know, the the incredible hyperbole being thrown at um, Biden and the Democrats, um, what, what what was your, what was your reaction to that? I know you were you were active on social media responding to those images.
2: Well, anybody who was following Vietnamese American politics in the last year or two during the era of the Trump administration was aware. Uh, that there's a large degree of support in the Vietnamese American community for Donald Trump and everything that he represents. And Vietnamese American Trump supporters are as fervent as every other Trump supporter about their, their man and that, that particular cause. So in some ways, I guess it was not a surprise that there apparently was a fairly sizable contingent of Vietnamese Americans who went to the Capitol, at least to hear the, the presidential speech and for some, I don't know how many to go to the, the capital itself. And at least one Vietnamese American was arrested inside the Capitol, a Houston police officer. So the the you know deeply conservative anti-communist politics of a substantial part of the Vietnamese American population, I think, I've evidently translated well into a support for Donald Trump because a lot of Vietnamese Americans and people in Vietnam as well support Trump because apparently of his supposedly strong anti-China stance, and China plays a significant role in the Vietnamese imagination. Uh, also, it's hard not to believe that um, Vietnamese Americans um, ha- have also absorbed some of the the racism and, and the, the white supremacy of the Trump movement. Um, we've seen that I think, in lesser degrees over the course of Vietnamese American history. You know, Vietnamese Americans, like every other immigrant and refugee group, have learned how to be Americans partly by absorbing anti-Black racism. And so there must be that present as well. But, you know, they were also flying the South Vietnamese flag. Now, that's a very particular manifestation of something. And I thought that it was a manifestation of nostalgia. Um, and when I say nostalgia, I'm talking about this in the Svetlana Boym sense in her book The Future of Nostalgia. She talks about different kinds of nostalgia. One one thing that she mentions is what she calls restorative nostalgia. This idea that we want to go back to the past and restore it completely. And growing up in the Vietnamese refugee community, I felt that this was a pretty accurate definition of uh, Vietnamese American politics. Um, now, nostalgia does not it has a very specific sense that it's it's literally a homesickness that can kill you. And I think that's actually a very accurate description of uh, a certain number of Vietnamese Americans uh, who felt such a degree of loss and pain and melancholy for uh, their missing country that it bordered on this kind of a homesickness, which led to all kinds of extremist um, politics and statements in, in the Vietnamese American community. So waving this particular flag was not only a symbol of supporting white supremacy, but it brought on, I think, all these other connotations of a desire to restore South Vietnam that somehow aligns perfectly well with every other set of politics that's going on in the Trump movement, which is nostalgic as well, and nostalgia for a moment of white supremacy and the Confederacy because there was a Confederate flag or more than one Confederate flag being waved there. So there's some alignment between the nostalgia that the South Vietnamese feel and the nostalgia that, some white people feel for a Lost South.
1: Yeah, and I also th- thought that the image uh, resonated with um, the way in which other sort of global anti-communist uh, symbols have been reappropriated. So, amongst the alt-right, um, uh, you'll see these, you know, Proud Boys and, and whatnot um, wearing T-shirts uh, with a helicopter with somebody being thrown out, mm-hmm. uh, with a reference to Pinochet in Chile. And, um, and the, the Argentinian junta uh, throwing um, uh, arrested leftists out of helicopters over the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. And I think uh, in some ways that like the, maybe the, the, the Republican flag of Vietnam, South Vietnam, um, has become the sort of, you know, signifier that can be reappropriated for various alt-right causes just as, you know, I don't think your average Pinochet could like tell you that much about Pinochet or about the politics or the DM regime other than anti-communist. Um, and I I asked about this because the, um, uh, we'll get into the book in a few minutes, but the, the, uh, one of the characters, uh, the main characters in the book is this die-hard anti-communist, uh, figure named, named Bon, um, now, before we get into the two novels, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I ask because um, in your role as a public intellectual, um, you really stress the importance of your identity and your positionality, um, and I think knowing your story um, helps shapes how we read these novels.
2: Well, I was born in Vietnam, uh, came to the United States as a refugee in 1975, along with a lot of other Vietnamese people, <laughs> including my family, obviously. And um, grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community in San Jose, California, where in the 1970s and the 1980s, where I was very deeply aware of myself as a Vietnamese refugee and all the issues that we just talked about, because I remember going to things like the debt celebrations and, and church, Catholic, Vietnamese Catholic church. And there would always be an overlay of nationalism and nostalgia and the yellow flag and the, and the anthem of the old country. So I was very aware of Vietnamese refugee memories and Vietnamese refugee feelings and all of their complexity and their tragedy. And then I was also growing up as an American. So I was also aware of, of being an Asian, increasingly being an Asian American. You know, I wouldn't have a name for this until I went to college, but I certainly had a growing sense of my racial difference in this society, which was reinforced by things like Vietnam War movies, of which I saw most that Hollywood was making in the in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, me becoming a writer in college, or starting to dream of becoming a writer in college, was was wrapped up with trying to figure out this history of the refugee experience, of the Vietnam War, and myself as an as an Asian American. And I would say that, you know, my my career over the last thirty years has been defined by those particular kinds of issues. Um, I've written, you know, I've specialized in Asian American literature as an academic, but now also memory and the the war in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and the, these novels and, and the short story collection, The Refugees, are all about talking about the war and the refugee experience together. And I think that my position on these issues is, is perhaps different than a lot of Americans because I contest the American point of view and different than a lot of Vietnamese Americans who would not brook any kind of sympathy with communism. And yet, in these works, I express sympathy for both Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese communists as well. And the last thing I'll say about this is that I think that now in, um, in what I'm dealing with, especially with the committed, maybe there's a shift in my thinking um, of, of emphasis that, you know, I've been, I've been focused a lot on domestic issues of anti-Asian racism and Asian American integration and all this stuff around multiculturalism and American politics and all of that. But the, the committed is very much a novel about colonization, what the French did in Vietnam and uh, what the Americans did by taking over French colonization in 19, uh, from 1945 to 1954. And that question of colonization is tied to the question of me being an American citizen in the United States that is a country built on colonization that is arguably still colonizing, if you ask indigenous peoples here. And so my my my, my current thinking is about much more, on, this, on, the, on the line of this question of colonization and and then decolonization, as the larger problematic that I'm interested in. I mean, none, none of the other all the other issues issues are still important to me, but I, increasingly, I think of them as falling under this this broader rubric of decolonization as a way of connecting the experiences of refugees, of uh, racial minorities, Asian Americans, with those of other peoples of color in the United States and the, the situations of other colonized and formerly colonized peoples elsewhere.
1: Yeah. As, as a historian of colonialism in Southeast Asia, I was pretty excited when, uh, the second you, you engage that topic in the second novel. Um, so why did, why did you turn to fiction? Um, I mean, you've, you, your academic conventional academic writing is, is excellent here. Um, nothing ever dies was shortlisted for a national book award. Again, uh, listeners check out the, the podcast from about a year ago where we talk about that book. Um, you know the the writing in there, on particularly on film, American films about the American war in Vietnam, you were know, I think some of those chapters are just fantastic. But what, why did you turn to fiction? What what did you think that you could do with fiction that you couldn't do with conventional academic prose? Well,
2: I don't have to footnote myself in fiction. So I mean nothing ever dies was a novel was a book that took, you know, a dozen years and more to research and and then eventually to write. And it's not written in your conventional academic fashion. So I did learn a lot from fiction writing and and brought it into that book. But nevertheless, I still had to do a lot of footnoting in that book to support the kinds of arguments that I was making about memory and ethics and so on. Now, fiction was, that was always actually my first love. I mean, I don't know who grows up Thinking, hey, I'm I'm 10 years old and I want to be a professor. I mean, unless you're the child of a professor, that I don't know, how do you, how do you think about that? I, I have no I, inclination. I'm raising my hand because I because I did. <laughs>
1: yeah. but then again, I'm the child of a professor, so maybe I'm proving your point. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> But I was a child of you know refugee shopkeeper parents, and so I had no idea what a doctorate was, no idea what a professor was. I had no idea what I was getting into when I when I went to graduate school. I, I went to graduate school because I didn't know what else to do with my life, and. Uh, you know, I thought, oh, I, I got a fellowship and, and uh, they'll pay me to, to read some books and do something for a few years. And that was great. But I wanted to be a writer. And the the writing part, I had to take a detour from that because I wasn't a very good writer in college and I was pragmatic. So I thought I have to get a job, might as well become a professor. Sounds, sounds like something that I could do. And then I got tenure and my ambition was always to go back to writing fiction. That's exactly what happened. But it, you know, it took a long time to become a good Uh, fiction writer. But seriously, I don't have to footnote myself. So in The Committed and The Sympathizer, these are books of criticism masked as fiction. Um, So I had to find the appropriate kind of fictional devices and so on to do this, to make sure that it worked. It wasn't just a professor ventriloquizing through fiction, but these, these are novels that work as novels, but they also work as criticism. And in that function as criticism, I get to say all kinds of things that, you know, a lot of things I believe in, in the voice of my narrator, the sympathizer, things that I believe to be true, but I don't have to prove them. So you either have to accept them or not accept them, but I don't have to go through extensive footnotes to demonstrate certain kinds of claims that I'm making in these books. So uh, fiction can be an entertaining way of provoking readers with ideas. Not all fiction does that, but in these two novels, that's the mode that I wanted to deploy.
1: Yeah, and, and the, the books could be footnoted. <laughs> I mean, I, I recognize certain sections here and there. Um, and, uh, and then in, at the end, you have a little section where you, uh, in the Committed, um, you, you do this. And I think you do it for the Sympathizer, too, where you you reference some of the, uh, the works that uh, influenced your thinking. I mean, essentially, you've got a little bibliography at the end of the novel, um, similar to, uh, I think, what Salman Rushdie did with um, uh, the book on Florence and India. Uh, or Amatif Gosh does with his, uh, his novels, like the Ibis Trilogy. Um, I know you regularly cite Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man as an important book for your thinking. Um, who else influenced your, your writing style and your, your choices?
2: Well, I mean, Dostoevsky was a big influence on Ellison's Invisible Man. And so, and I I already was, you know, was aware of Dostoevsky before Ellison, but it made sense that I was influenced both by Dostoevsky and Ellison, similar set of concerns about, you know, uh, deeply alienated individuals struggling against their own societies uh, and, you know, engaged in first person monologues or or confessions and the very act of confession itself in those books, I you know, because one of the defining experiences of, of of Vietnamese refugees is that many of them had to go through re-education and the confessional experience there. And, and so I wanted to be able to use that that you know basically a literary form that had been totally politicized and use it for my own very literary and political purposes. Um, for for the sympathizer, I was also you know deeply influenced by Louis Ferdinand Celine's journey to the end of the night. Uh, 1920s era modernist classic from France, and Celine was apparently not the nicest guy in the world, to put it to put it lightly. But I don't have to worry about that; he's dead, you know. And I have his novel, and I approach his novel without knowing anything about him. And so, regardless of whatever he said and did uh, around, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and so on, uh, the, I think the novel remains for me as uh, an important literary kind of a, of a of a touchstone. And there's so many other works that these books allude to so in the committed i try to leave a lot of literary traces in in, because actual names are being cited and mentioned in that book and because it's a book that's set in france i wanted to engage a lot with french literary uh and philosophical culture the french are very proud rightfully so of of their literary and philosophical accomplishments and i wanted my novel to engage with that and also to rebut some of these things or to revise them so running throughout the committed, there's a lot of commentary and allusions to Voltaire and to Rousseau and to Sat and to the decolonizing thinkers that were, you know, colonized by France, like Amy Césaire and France Um And so, yeah, there's there's a wealth of, of literary allusions more than I can recount at the present moment running through both of these books. Yeah, and
1: you know, as as someone who's trained, you know, was originally trained in French history and Sat you know, went through a number of uh, French literature seminars and theory seminars at UC Santa Cruz. I mean, it was, this is the kind of reading that, you know, I really get to nerd out on like, oh, here's who he's referencing and so forth. Um, and so th- these novels engage a huge range of social issues, um, anti-Asian racism being one of the most important. And, you you know, as you know, you, you cite a number of intellectuals, Fanon, Kristeva. I mean, you have, you have a character, a uh, without spoiling too much uh, uh, he's is a, he's a bouncer in a, in a brothel who's reading um uh, post-colonial theory and he's reading Fanon and and others um and they, they figure prominently in 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 the works but these are also the, the novels are also genre pieces um they're spy novels and the this the committed is is you know it's it's part spy novel part mafia story organized crime right um and they're they're funny they're, they're really funny. And at times the humor is risque, it's vulgar. And in a scene that I will not describe for the listeners in the committed, it is, they're literally scatological humor. Um, um, why did you mix these extremely serious discussions with this fun and, you know, at times sort of lowbrow, um, uh, humor and genre?
2: Well, as Ralph Ellison says, quoting Popeye, I am who I am. So that's who I am. I mean, like I'm I'm am an academic, you know, who's very serious and very rational and and I behave myself very well in academic situations from department meetings to conferences and all of that. But underneath there's somebody else, you know, who's who who has a sense of humor that's oftentimes vulgar and scatological. Um, and I have to repress that to, or I've had to repress that to survive in academia, but it's always been there. So to me, it's perfectly natural to have both, you know, philosophy and theory and also an interest in B movies and pulp fiction and violence and vulgarity and all that kind of thing. And I'm very proud of the fact that I was invited to give, um, to be part of a, a presidential plenary at the Modern Language Association right before the pandemic hit. I was up there with like Gachi Spivak. For example, like one of my definitive theoretical role models, and I stood up in front of all these people at the MLA, I don't know, there was probably a thousand people in the room, and I, I hope that I gave the speech with the most fucks ever said at the MLA, certainly at the presidential plenary. Um, and that felt like a, like a coming out for me, like, hey, this is who I am, and I've always thought this way, I've just had to repress myself for your sake and not for mine. And so, you know, these novels are demonstrations of the merging of high and low culture. I'm not interested in the middle brow. I mean, the middle brow is, is completely uninteresting to me. And it feels like so much of you know contemporary American fiction is totally middle brow and looks down on the low brow so-called genre fiction as somehow not being literary and can't deal with the so-called high brow. Like philosophy and theory, and so one of the responses that I've seen to this to this novel, the committed in the handful of reviews I that I've I've allowed myself to see, is that some people are are remarking on the presence of philosophy in these books, in this book, and saying, "Well, this is a little weird, you know. It seems it seems to disrupt the fiction or whatever take they're having." I'm like, "Why, why, why do you think this? You know, like in what world is it not permissible to talk about philosophy in your fiction, except in a world that says we can't discuss ideas explicitly in fiction?" So there's all these kinds of rules in both in the world of academia and and in the world of American fiction that I find just, you know, really dumb. And honestly, and and I I find it fun to bring them into close contact with each other. And that the friction uh, between the high and the low between the serious and the scatological is uh, provocative and entertaining and certainly enjoyable, enjoyable for me to write.
1: Yeah. And it makes me think of uh, two things. One, again, without giving away too much, there's a very, probably the most, most cathartic paragraph, uh, uh, in the committed is the fuck you, thank you paragraph. Um, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but I, 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 I as I, as I read it, I, I think that's, that's what, what you're getting at there. Um, and also there's this great Salman Rushdie quote that I think I got on a, uh, a bookmark from an independent bookstore They, you know, back when we used to have independent bookstores, uh, where Salman Rushdie said, you know, who says I can't talk about Homer's Iliad and Homer Simpson in the same sentence? <laughs> and, um, he, I think he he was, you know, someone who I read earlier on who I think really like s- excited me about the mixing of serious intellectual work with lowbrow fun. Yeah, um, I, I wish I had said that, <laughs> but in fact, <laughs> I, I, I do quote Salman
2: Rushdie in the committed. Uh, I read, um, from its from his collection, Imaginary Homelands, the opening essay. I think the title is Nothing Is Sacred. Uh, you know, he asked the question, "Is nothing sacred?" And he, he, you know, this is all around obviously the question of the controversy around Satanic Verses. Uh, and he, and in, in the end, he says, "No, nothing is sacred to to the writer." And uh, if you read the committed by the end, I think Nothing Is Sacred is a line that that is in there. Um, I was thinking specifically about about Rushdie but nothing is sacred fits very much into the theme. One of the themes that runs through both of these books about nothingness and the complexities found in the idea of nothing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I got, I got to meet uh, Salman Rushdie once. uh, And um, uh, we share the same birthday, June 19th, Juneteenth, uh, exactly 20 years apart. And I thought that, and I, at that time Midnight's children was my favorite novel ever. And um, I, I, you know, I brought it for him to sign and and was very excited to tell him that. And I think I freaked him out a little bit. <laughs> There's a couple of pictures where he's like starting to pull away, like, okay, move this guy along. <laughs> but um, uh, could you say a little bit more about the spy genre as a metaphor for exploring the politics of identity? Um, if, I'm, if I'm reading that right. I mean, some of the things you said previously about, you know, um, you know, growing up with, uh, you know, what what some call the hyphenated identity, right? Mm. Being of two worlds, um, and your character, the main character, is is a man with two minds, and that that works in several different registers. But could you say something uh, about this in terms of it, it as a tool to explore identity politics? Sure.
2: I mean, The Committed is a, is a crime novel uh, because he's no longer a spy, but The Sympathizer is a spy novel, and certainly. The Sympathizer is partly responding to Graham Greene's The Quiet American, which I read in college. That's a spy novel. And Greene is a major influence on me as someone who did go high and low using the spy novel and other kinds of so-called genre novels, uh, genres to talk about very serious political and historical events and issues. And uh, you know, in The Quiet American, it's a novel partly about identity, not in the sense of identity politics, like we would talk about it today, but certainly the identity of the narrator of the novel, the identity of the quiet American, the identity of of, of the Vietnamese, all of these are, are wrapped up in this, uh, this detective story in a spy story that is the quiet American. And in the context of the sympathizer, you know, where the spy novel is taking place in relationship both to the war in Vietnam, but also to the Vietnamese refugee experience in the United States, questions of identity do come up. You know, what does it mean to be Someone who is not white in the United States, or as as, an, as a Vietnamese refugee, or as a, as a, as an Asian, is a, is a prominent theme throughout a part of the book. And you know, in in Ellison's Invisible Man, we, you know, we get we get there we get a sense that it's partly a spy novel in a very unconventional sense because the novel is explicit from the very beginning that a black man moving in a white world has to function partly like a spy and he has to be sort of undercover and. And, and not reveal everything about himself, even as he's constantly observing the white people around him. And when I was growing up in San Jose, I felt like I was an American spying on my Vietnamese parents. And then when I stepped out of the house, I was a, a Vietnamese spying on American people. And that theme of the ethnic person or the racialized person as a spy is something that Chang Ray Lee picks up and makes very explicit in his novel, native speaker, which is another influence that novel was influenced by invisible man and in turn helped influence me. But in Native Speaker, the Korean-American protagonist is, is literally a domestic spy on uh, corporate espionage. And, you know, there's a parallel drawn between his spy work there and his own feeling of himself as a person who is spy-like in his double consciousness. So that idea from Du Bois speaking specifically about Black people is always seeing themselves through the eyes of others is easily translatable, according to Chang Ray Lee, to the Asian American experience. And I, I agree with that. So the double, double consciousness of racialized experience in the United States carries with it the implications of potentially being a spy, because oftentimes the racialized person has to disguise herself or himself to function in the white world.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I thought that, that that especially in the first novel, that's just so enlightening as he makes his way through this uh, uh, through Southern California, and it's it's set in the late nineteen seventies, and the 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 various characters uh, that he, that he meets, and this 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 act of constantly having to put on an ask and a mask or an act. Uh, um, what? I got a question. What? what why did you? Set the Sympathizer in Orange County and not your hometown of San Jose. I was always kind of wondering about that.
2: Well, you know, San Jose, you know, bless it. You know, it's just not as colorful of an environment as Orange County. And also Orange County is closer to L.A., which which is the most colorful of all. And I'm, I'm, I was living in L.A. I'm still living in L.A. when I wrote the Sympathizer. So I wanted to set it in in a city that had a lot to offer. And San Jose, you know, not a lot to offer in a lot of ways, which doesn't mean it's not worthy of a a novelistic treatment, just it would be a different kind of novelistic treatment. And I needed needed a very um, sort of vibrant and exciting uh, environment for the sympathizer to operate in. And historically, you know, Los Angeles is close to Camp Pendleton, a couple hours away. Camp Pendleton is one of the major refugee resettlement centers for Vietnamese refugees. And in fact, uh, a lot of them initially went to L.A. in in 1975 and in the 1970s, and eventually there was a larger migration um, an hour away to Orange County to the cities there, I think partly because it's more affordable there. Uh, but initially there was quite a few Vietnamese people in Los Angeles and they did things like open the first uh, you know, uh, nightclub there in Los Angeles. So it made, made historical sense to, to put them there in, in, in the midst of um, not just what the Vietnamese community was doing, but then it would also put them in proximity to things like Hollywood, which I wanted to to satirize as well
1: right and and also in orange county is where you start seeing the the alliance formed between um the vietnamese political uh, aspiration vietnamese um, refugees with political aspirations and the republican party yeah. and it's it's really in that hotbed of uh over orange county who is it is, is it Dana Rohrbach Who is who is who is
2: the Orange County has its share of has its share of hardcore right wing Republicans. Dana Rohraback is one of them, but the one that I was thinking of that is uh, you know, explicitly alluded to in uh, the Sympathizer is a guy named Bob Dornan, whose nickname was B fifty two Bob. Okay, and he was a hardcore anti communist uh, long t- long term Republican congressman there. And there's a character called the Congressman in the Sympathizer. Uh, who's a little little more sophisticated than Bob Dornan, but nevertheless is meant to evoke this kind of patriotic anti-communism that finds, as you said, easy alignment with the Vietnamese anti-communists who came to Orange County. And of course, the problem that had to be overcome is that you know some of these Orange County Republicans are racist. They don't like non-white people. And so you had to overcome that racism to see that they had natural allies with the Vietnamese anti-communists. And I think that alliance is now
1: strongly forged. Right, that was that was the figure I was thinking of. I was mixing up my uh, or, white Orange County Republican uh, political figures. Forgive me. Um, so without without giving away too much, and we've been we've been alluding to this, but can you just tell us that without you know avoiding spoilers um, the basic plot storyline of the two novels? It's the um, uh, the trajectory the main character goes through. The sympathizer
2: is about a communist spy in the South Vietnamese army in April 1975, when Saigon falls or is about to be liberated, and his mission is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States, where he's going to spy on their efforts to take their country back. Um, and he's part French and part Vietnamese. His father is a French priest who molested this 13-year-old Vietnamese girl, who became the sympathizer's mother. So there's a spy novel. There's a spy novel going on. There is a refugee novel going on as he resettles in the United States and deals with all these cultural confusions. Um, there's also a novel here about the colonization that the French did in, in, uh, in Vietnam, although that's a more of a, a minor theme that I'll amplify more in The Committed. And so there's all kinds of, you know, spy novel types of adventures or misadventures that will take place in the United States. But then eventually he does, in fact, go back with a suicide squad to try to invade Vietnam, um, and that this but this by the way, almost everything in the sympathizer is based on real historical events or personages. Um, and not to give anything away, but by the end of the sympathizer, he has to flee Vietnam yet again as a refugee. And that's exactly where the committed picks up. So the committed, you know, starts on that refugee boat and he eventually ends up in Paris of 1982 in the City of Light. And the project of this novel is to pull the plug on the City of Light. So here the French who got off relatively easy in the Sympathizer become the main subject of attention, the question of French colonization and the civilizing mission that the French did, you know, which allowed the French to do all kinds of uncivil, horrible things in its colonies, is fully addressed in this novel. And he's no longer a spy and he's deeply traumatized. So he makes some bad choices and he, he falls in with a gang of ethnic Chinese Vietnamese gangsters while he's living with his so-called aunt, a woman who is a a member of the elite. She's also French and Vietnamese and she is an editor and she hangs out with left-wing intellectuals and politicians and they have a, they have a need for hashish. So he becomes the supplier between these two worlds. Um, And again, we get the high and the low brought together uh, a, a tale of, of, of ethnic gangsters who are rubbing shoulders eventually with these, these white left wing, Intellectuals, and so the novel gets to have a lot of fun on the crime story, and to bring in these serious ideas and to satirize the French Left, who are ripe objects for satire.
1: Yeah, the the committed reminds me a bit of the film Outside the Law, by the uh, I'm trying to blank out his name, Franco Algerian director, and he his first film was Andy Andijan about um, uh, North African troops that served in World War II. And then outside the laws about the the FLN Algerian activists that um, uh, get involved in the criminal underworld in Paris and the porous nature of um, underground political activism and underground organized crime and I, I, I saw the, um, that no, your novel resonating with uh, some of the ideas there. Um, there's there's a lot of history in um, in these books and um, you, you noted that the the events that happen in The Sympathizer are, are all drawn from. Uh, uh, historical events did you did you do much research for this? I mean you, I know that you cite um, a book I love Alfred McCoy's Politics of heroin at the end of the committed. Um, but um, what well, I mean did you was there an aspect of historical research? I mean, this, is, this this podcast is, after all, new books in history, so I need to justify why why we're talking fun novels. Well, I'm, I'm
2: very intimately aware of Vietnamese-American history. So in The Sympathizer, um, on the one hand, there wasn't that much research because I grew up in this Vietnamese-American world and was deeply curious about all the stuff that involved Vietnamese-Americans. So it's easy to just plug in a lot of stuff that I already knew was was taking place. So the, the research in The Sympathizer was oftentimes not so much broadly historical, like, you know, did this event happen, but was instead very fictional. Like, how do I recreate the fall of Saigon? How do I recreate the making of uh, a movie, uh, American movie in the Philippines? So that was non-scholarly research, really. That was about reading journalism and, and journalistic accounts. Now, The Committed is set in a world that I'm less familiar with, which is Paris and France and uh, the lives of Vietnamese people there and their their descendants,
1: who became French. And, and also the, the, world, the world of organized crime. And the world of organized which, crime. Right. And, I don't know what your department <laughs> meetings are like, but uh, I don't know. if.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know a whole lot about all, a lot of these things. And so one of the ways that I tried to get around that was to make my character the narrator, the sympathizer, an outsider to French society. Now, he, he did study French in Vietnam. He went to the Lycee but he hasn't, he hasn't spoken French in 20 or something so years. Um, and so when he arrives, and he's never been to France. So when he arrives, he's a newcomer to France. His French is rusty. So if there are any mistakes that happen in the book in terms of the depiction of French culture and French language, I blame it on him as being someone who doesn't completely understand what's taking place. And then that meant that I think the level of detail in the book is a little bit different than the level of detail in the sympathizer. I think there's enough detail in the in the committed so that we get a sense of gritty urban Paris, um, the world of refugees and immigrants in the early 1980s. And thankfully, geographically, I don't think Paris has changed that much since the early 1980s. So I didn't have to try to think about how Paris looked back then that was radically different than how it might have looked today. But there, there is a, uh, you know, I mean, I, I was careful in, in like putting in certain details, but not having to worry about putting in like every single street name or every single cafe name that they that they that they went to. So there's a certain, certain level of gauziness. In the depiction here, and I did do some research with you know Alfred McCoy's Politics of Heroin and uh, and uh, Giselle Bousquet's Behind the Bamboo Hedge, which is I think the only account I could find of the lives of Vietnamese refugees in 1970s and 1980s Paris. A very useful account and some you know photo books, basically um, uh, one book of photos about about Asians in Paris, from which I found the key photograph that appears at the end of this book about uh, Vietnamese uh, French, the French of Vietnamese descent, a small contingent of whom participated in the 1984 uh, March for Immigrants and Against Racism that took place throughout France and, and in Paris, which was I think the first major manifestation of that kind of sentiment um, in France. And then also a book called Race, Sex et Colonies, uh, Race, Sex and Colonies, a um, massive compendium of photos and images depicting the french colonial fantasies and imagination in their colonies which are you know the a deeply orientalist racist sexist imagination i could draw on all of those images and they would, they would those those ideas are very specific to one scene in the book but also they the sense of that french orientalism is pervasive throughout the novel um and so a lot of it though i had just had to imagine like the world of french intellectuals i met a few french intellectuals but you know a lot of it is based just on what I've read in newspaper accounts and my suppositions about what these French intellectuals must be like based on the scholarship that they produced. You know, For example, the fetishization of China by a certain element of the French left-wing intellectual set in the 1970s is being referenced here with the character of the Maoist PhD. Um, BFD and other French intellectual evokes many different kinds of people, but probably the most prominent being DSK, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, a leader of the French socialist party, you know, who was alleged to have raped a black maid in his hotel, never convicted. But, you know, what came out during the trial was that he and his friends had a high end prostitution ring. Now, these guys are members of the left, you know, very upstanding members of society. And yet they're indulging in this kind of stuff. And that appears in the novel as well.
1: Yeah. That, um, I thought that that scene, um, that's, uh, it's a, it's a, let's just say it's a very decadent party. Um, where you're sort of skewing the the corruption of the, the supposed uh, elite French left, which it's very enamored with wealth and comfort and, and luxury. Um, and you tie that with um, the, the Orientalist obsession and also just the, um, the, the not just Orientalism in the Saidian sense, but the, but also the sort of sexualized Orientalism and creating the, the, the other as this uh, sexual playground for uh, white men be it colonial or post-colonial But that was like a really really rich and powerful scene in in that book um so in there's a lot of violence in both books uh, and, but the committed is really soaked in blood um, and there are several torture scenes and also I think one of the most accurate descriptions of the the emotional, impact of a street fight that I've read in some time um, I it, the um, the when the the street fight starts it just goes into this long 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 several page run- on sentence and like the way that you put that together that really sort of captured the the intensity of that kind of uh physical violence on on one sort of mind and, and the body um and for but for me some of the violence in the committed resonated um hopefully I'm not offending you with this, but with the films of Quentin Tarantino. Um, and, and maybe this is me because I, I was a graduate student in the 1990s and uh, spent um, several years living in France. And that's when Pulp Fiction got big and it was really big in France. And so in my mind, a lot of that sort of Quentin Tarantino stuff is associated with, uh, with Paris. Uh, um, but um, the, uh, at other times, the violence directly engages Fanon. And especially the sort of the Fanonian idea of violence as a cleansing force for the colonized man, and I, and, I, and I'm specifically gendering that in regards to Fanon's writing because I think it is it, he's doing a very gendered um, argument there. But what's what's your relationship with violence? Your your read on violence? What did you what did you want to say about violence and and violence in the context of? Um, Colonization and decolonization with these books.
2: Well, I think one of the the Italian reviews of the novel that I've liked is where the reviewers characterize part of part of the book as being. Uh, Dostoevsky, as rendered by Taran- by Tarantino, now that's perfect. That's exactly you know okay. I, I, I love that description. Uh, okay. <laughs> this goes back to the high and low aspect uh, that that the, that runs throughout the work. You know that uh, the violence on the one hand is pulpy violence, and I think yes, I'm not offended by the reference to Tarantino because I watched all those Tarantino movies. I'm I'm generally a fan of Tarantino, even if sometimes he says the wrong thing, which is fine. Um, you know, but I'm 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 attracted to that kind of pulp fictional kind of violence in his movies. that are very smartly done, but also just in general, the world of Pulp Fiction violence, it's entertaining for a certain kind of reader, which is my, me. Um, and I wanted that entertainment aspect in the book. And of course it wor- works perfectly well with the gang's gangland story of the mafia and organized crime. So there's that going on. And then there is this question, the high-minded question of when is violence permissible and necessary in the context of revolution? So I, I, you know, I, I read Fanon in college, both uh, Black Skin, White Masks and the, the Wretched of the Earth. And so I think I've been wrestling with, with him for quite a long time. Um, my thinking about him lay dormant for a long time after graduate school, but I thought it would be appropriate to come back to him here and try to figure out my own thinking on the, on the question of violence. Because in the, in the context in which he's talking about the Algerian Revolution of the 1950s, uh, it's arguable that violence was inevitable because of what the French were doing there. Um, could a nonviolent revolution have succeeded in in Algeria, for example? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are specific situations in which nonviolence can work, and maybe in situ- other situations where it can't. So maybe you know we can't. I think we can detach Fennel from the specific situation that he's arguing for, but some of his claims, I think, are are meant to be transcendent beyond the local situation. So when he says in French, like violence detoxifies uh that's 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 you know violence detoxifies that the, the colonized man can 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 get rid of the impact of colonization by taking violence uh, upon himself and i think that's meant to be understood in a much broader context than only the algerian revolution so i think that there is some truth to that i assume violence can detoxify can you know render the colonized man into a more independent uh, decolonizing subject but is that a universal truth? And I had a hard time, you know, with Phenol in college trying to think outside of that. Like, okay, well, who am I to say that Phenol is wrong in this respect? But here in this, in this book, I try to present an alternative because there's a connection between the detoxification of decolonizing violence and this criminal pulpy fiction violence. Because it's totally possible. I think that one of the consequences of becoming violent is not that you detoxify, but that you continue to toxify yourself. There's a theme in the committed of toxic masculinity that's there in the sympathizer as well. And these gangsters, you know, they're toxic. I mean, they're violent, but I wouldn't say that they're better men because they're violent and that their violence is not only due to being criminals, but is is at least partly an outcome of colonizing violence and its distortions in the colonies. And so the narrator of The Committed is interested in detoxifying himself, does recognize, without using these terms, that he is the bearer of a toxic masculinity. And he's also perplexed about the question of violence, especially since he's the perpetrator of violence and the object of violence throughout the novel. And so you know, I'll give away one element of the book. By the end, he, he has a long you know, passage where he says... Uh, Yes, violence detox, can detoxify, but what if violence can continue to poison us? And what if non-violence can detoxify us too? In other words, every claim that Fennel makes about what violence can do, he argues, my sympathizer argues, non-violence can do the same thing. And non-violence might have an advantage because when we uh, when we become violent, we replicate. The colonizer within us. In other words, there's a mirror image relationship here between the violence of the colonizer and the violence of the colonized, engage in this master-slave kind of relationship. Whereas maybe with nonviolence, because it's not violence, we could break that mirror and use nonviolence to imagine a world beyond how the beyond the terms that the colonizer has given us.
1: I'm, I'm wondering: Did you have you read um, Anwar Ben Malik's uh, "The Lovers of Algeria"? he's a Franco Algerian author and he sets the story in, in Algeria in, it, it goes back and forth in time. And part of it set in um, the 1990s during the horrifying civil war. Um, and part of it set during the Algerian war for independence in the early sixties. And part of it goes back to the early 1930s. And it's a love story between a, um, uh, a Jewish Alsatian woman and an Algerian man. And in some ways it was, it was one of the first first pieces I read that really refuted Fanon and um, or maybe not refuted Fanon but sort of carried Fanon's logic forward and say hey look you know this idea of violence as a cleansing forth, force what's that going to mean for Algerian history 20 30 40 years from now and by moving back and forth in time in these in these periods of like really horrifying punctuated violence he makes us Argument for that? that Yes, it it serves a role. Violence serves a role for Algerian men in the their psychological process of decolonization. But what are the long term consequences for the men and women of this society? Um, So, when I was when I was reading the committed, it really resonated with some of the um, some of the uh, the things uh, that Malik engages in. Um, I want to ask you: Do you do you like your main character? And do you? I, I mean clearly he's a vehicle for you to put a bunch of stuff that you're you're angry about. I mean it's 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 like really I mean writing writing must serve as a real catharsis. But um, do you like the character? Do you identify with them? Um, what what what's not you in this character? Maybe that's maybe that's my question.
2: I think when when I gave an early draft of the sympathizer to my agent, uh, he responded by saying he's not a very sympathetic character, is he? Or not a very likable character. I can't remember which, which term. I think likable character. And my response to that was, well, I like him, you know, because I understand him. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm a particular kind of a reader and a writer who is not turned off by negativity in characters. Um, that I'm, I'm in fact drawn to characters that don't function well. In society, yeah, who are if you like, uh, if you like Celine, yeah, exactly. You I know, mean, and I'm and I'm nice. and I'm kind of that person myself. You know, I mean, my attitudes and so on are oftentimes not aligned with the communities that I live in. I have very critical things to say about the United States that get some Americans angry at me. I have very critical things to say about Vietnamese communists that has meant that my work is some of my work is not permitted in Vietnam. I have very critical things to say about the Vietnamese Americans, which means that some Vietnamese Americans really dislike me uh, because I, I I I I get I. I get really allergic around orthodoxy of any kind, no matter who's who's espousing it. Um, And this sympathizer is someone who sympathizes with everybody, but he's also allergic to a lot of social norms as well, because because of his ability to see issues from both sides, he can sympathize with the supposed enemy. But because he can adopt their point of view, he can see the limitations of the orthodoxy of his own side, whatever that happens to be. And he is an alter ego. Um, I took that experience of feeling like a spy growing up, and I created a character who was really a spy, much more interesting than me, and put him under much more extreme circumstances that would be more entertaining and compelling for for readers. So a lot of me is within him and and going back to that footnoting issue i I can say a lot of things that I believe in through him without having to prove anything you know if, if you don't like it, I can say hey it's a, it's a novel, it's fiction, you know take it up with the sympathizer, not with me." Uh, it, are, are there things about him that are not me? Well, I mean, he's, he's a, he's, he's mixed race. He's, uh, and I'm not mixed race, but I guess growing up as a Vietnamese American, you I guess you could argue in some allegorical way, there's some kind of mixing happening there. Uh, but he's a, he's a liar. He's a, uh, an alcoholic. He's a womanizer. He's a spy. Ultimately he's a murderer. I'm none of those things except, you know, I drink a lot. So, I mean, that's like the only thing in, 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 in sort of an autobiographical way that I share with the sympathizer. Um, so there are vast differences between me and him as a person, but I think psychologically we share quite a bit.
1: Yeah. And the, the books the books are obviously, you know, about the Vietnamese uh, refugee diaspora, but they're also a lot about whiteness. And um, in particular, you know, you sort of engage Edward Said's Orientalism and in the ways in which Euro-Americans construct a, um, a self-serving image of Asia and Asians that works as their reality as it as it serves their needs um and you write characters that represent various types of annoying white people um one of my absolute favorite and can <laughs> guess why one of my absolute favorite is the white male american professor of um oriental studies who wants to tell the asians what they think <laughs> and how they how they understand things um the in the sympathizer, the, um, the, the American filmmakers, those characters are, are amazing. And, um, and then in the committed, your caricatures, of the French intellectuals are spot on. And I love that. Um, you know, you, you have the fictionalized version of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, DSK. You, You call this guy BFD or BFD. Uh, you have the Maoist PhD and, um, you know, in, in my mind around the house, I've been, uh, uh, I've been, um, calling, uh, as I get ready for this, I've been calling you VTN, you know, VTN with a French pronunciation. I think, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll get some traction. Uh, but tell us about some of the white characters you wrote and, um, what you wanted to get out of them and what, what you, what you want to get out of these characters and what you use them for and, um, and, and how they served as ways to critique whiteness and it's French and American forms and, and manifestations.
2: You know, E.M. Forster, the novelist in his book on writing, I think it's called the art of the novel, uh, Talks about the distinction between round and flat characters, you know, round being fully thought out and flat being stereotypical. Uh, he wasn't actually making a value judgment, from what I recall, on the round and the flat character. He was saying they serve different purposes in fiction, and uh, I took that to heart. But I also took to heart, um, you know, a, a particular strain of the of aesthetics that have always been influential on me, which is what we might call agit prop. You know, our, artwork that also serves a political purpose of agitation and propaganda and provocation and so on. And and, and in Agitprop, the flat characters tend to dominate, you know, because part of what's being done here is to make people think about about politics and about political types of people. And this kind of aesthetic, I think, is not well received in my context of academic literary fiction um, and mainstream American literary fiction, which is supposed to be all about the round characters like you're not supposed to have stereotypes because stereotypes are bad you know and and on the one hand, i can appreciate that being the target of stereotypes myself but somehow strangely in this world of where we're supposed to reject all kinds of flat characters and only have round characters nevertheless there's never been a place or very little place for people like me in the imagination of white writers so you know when we appear we are stereotypes and when we don't and then when, when we should be appearing as round round characters we never appear at all so i think that there is a, a, a time and a place for the flat character to be used. And I'm someone who's actually, who actually enjoys agit prop. You know, for example, uh, one of the plays that's cited in this book, The Committed, is Amy Césaire's The Tempest, uh, the satire on, uh, A Tempest, I'm sorry, the satire in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And I saw that in production as a student at the Berkeley Rep. And I loved it. I loved it. I, I was laughing throughout the production. I was totally into it. And I was I was sitting next to these two older white people, a couple, man and a woman, and they were, I assume, retired. They didn't laugh at all. Maybe they were like repertory subscribers, you know? <laughs> and I was like, this somebody on a student ticket. They didn't laugh at all. And I remember watching um, M. Butterfly, the David Henry Wong play in San Francisco, and laughing throughout it and sitting next to white people who didn't laugh at the parts that the Asian Americans laughed at. So this is partly the function of agit Prop. You know, you have to be in on the joke or you have to agree with the politics to find it entertaining and stimulating. I do. So there's a dimension of that in the Committed and the Sympathizer where there's a lot of flat characters of all kinds, not just white people. There's a lot of flat Asian characters as well. I mean, for example, there's a gang in uh, in the, the Committed and they're called the Seven Dwarfs. Seven Dwarfs. You know, they're all flat. They just have one name, like grumpy and angry. and That's all we know about them, Okay. But for the white characters, I thought, uh, well, have a taste of your own medicine. You know, you, let's present you as a stereotype or as a flat character. See how you like it. Um, and also, you know, that I think there's some truth. There's always truth to stereotypes. And there's, and there's important ways in which we can, we can deploy stereotypes in a productive fashion. Um, you know, typically the stereotypes of Asian people in, West, in the Western imagination is that they're, they're put there completely service the Orientalist narratives of the white characters, and then also to be raped or killed or to be turned into sexual servants and everything else. And I think that my de- in my depiction of the white characters, nothing that bad happens to them. They don't get murdered. They don't, I don't think they don't get murdered. They don't get raped. They don't get abused. In fact, they're pretty much left in the same place where we began with them. They still remain in positions of power. So the otor, the white male director in the sympathizer, yes, he's subjected to scabrous treatment in the novel, but he's still the white guy. Though he's still the man by the end of the story. He's still making Hollywood movies at the end of the book. So there's a vast difference in my deployment of stereotypes and the, the racist and sexist deployment of stereotypes in Western literature and film. And in the use of the flat characters, white people as flat characters, they exemplify particular kinds of traits, which as far as I can tell, really do exist. So I've come across the department study the oriental studies department chairman as a type in academia i've been subjected to his kind of statements you know so i don't i don't feel that there's any manipulation of the truth here
1: in what these characters represent yeah i mean i i i thought they were they, they all those those types really rang true and and um you know i uh I did a graphic history of um, colonial Vietnam. And one of the things that I really stressed with the artist is I, you know, wanted to give full humanity to the Vietnamese and the Asian characters as, as she, she drew them. But I said, you know, Hey, you know what we can do? Let's stereotype the French a bit and make them a little flatter. So the, the, the French, uh, the images of the French characters are they're, they're all so over the top colonial. They've always got a glass of wine they're always in white outfits. Um, and yeah, it was to this um, sort of like a fellow traveler move with you to like, yeah, they, there are generations of using Asian bodies as decor in Western literature and film and culture. Uh, let's do that to the uh, to the white folks. Um, so on, on, on a somewhat related note, in the second novel, you really um, start to pick apart French racism and different aspects of that. And um, I don't know if you want to do a sort of I don't know if it's even useful, a comparative racism of France and America. Um, maybe you're familiar with the work of Tyler Stovall. Um, he wrote Perry Noir, African-Americans in the city of light. And then more recently white freedom, the racial history of an idea, which is a comparative history of the ways in which France and the United States built a concept of freedom based upon whiteness and black unfreedom. So, um, and, and, you know, full disclosure he was he was my advisor and he's my friend um, but uh and and really formative for my thinking here so i was really delighted in the cycle of novels to uh, have you pick apart aspects of anti-asian racism in california where i live and then take it to france and then sort of pick apart uh french anti-asian racism but also wider french racism so could you could you say a few words on on that and um, I don't know. I, I don't know if the similarities and differences question makes any sense here, but um, sort of contrasting American and French uh, racial attitudes and practices of racism.
2: I mean, obviously, the French right now are, are going through a lot of discussions on these topics. You know about the the, the rise of, of uh, the French um, anti racism movement and uh, the the French version of Me Too, and and also you know um, the assertiveness of minoritized populations in France and uh, there's a certain segment of the French population that doesn't like to see this and blames these manifestations on American influences uh, as if, you know, American ideas have somehow been exported to France and that's, that's what's driving these kinds of uh, insurgencies. And there, I'm sure there's some American influence there, but, you know, obviously the American ideas have been influenced by French ideas and that the French themselves have a decolonizing tradition and people like Césaire and Fanon who don't need the Americans to tell them what to think. But there's, you know, if you go back to Cesare and Fanon, they're already referring to what happened to black people in the United States. They're already building this sort of idea of a global black diaspora or a global black consciousness. And in fact, then if we look at England and, and the United States and, and, and France, what you we, know, in my, in my thinking, what we're really seeing are two countries that have wonderful democratic ideals. We're all, we're all familiar with, they, with what they are. And we have two countries that are also imperial powers at the same time. And it's, it's, the, the reality, in my opinion, that unless the French and the Americans, or the countries as a whole, their societies and the dominant populations, unless these people can acknowledge that imperialism, their imperialism, is inseparable from their ideals, that in fact they work together in a contradictory way. And that contem- the contemporary French and American societies for white people in these countries is an outcome of these contradictions and that white people benefit from the legacies of imperialism, then we're not going to be able to address these particular issues of like racial difference or whether multiculturalism in the United States is better than universalism in France. And my stance is that neither the French or the American system uh, is going to solve these problems of racial exploitation and difference, for example, using only the rhetoric of universalism or multiculturalism. And the only way we can solve these issues is by going back to their root problems, which are still with us in terms of issues of slavery, genocide, colonization that are completely integral to the foundations of French and American societies. So I, you know, I would, you know, I, I mean, I, I think I would like to choose from the best of both places as in terms of where to live and how to live my own life. And I have a slight preference for the American version of multiculturalism, but I don't think the American system is inherently any better than the French and vice versa as well. So hopefully the two novels working together will make that argument uh, for me. And then, you know, one, you, obviously in the committee, we see anti-Asian racism being enacted by white people, but we also see anti-Asian violence being enacted by the French of Alger, Algerian descent. And that's a parallel, you know, this, this this antagonism between between the Vietnamese and the Algerians' gangs in in this novel, parallel, you know, some of the conversations that we're having in the United States about anti-Asian violence here being um, undertaken not just by white people, but by other people of color, including black people as well. Um And, you know, I just came from a a talk that ta Coates gave where he brought up the issue of anti-Asian violence, uh, denouncing it, but also saying, look, there are some black people who've been doing this kind of stuff. And basically, you know, racism doesn't make people better and that black people themselves can absorb racist ideas and can act out on them. And uh, and I think that's true. And that works also for Asian Americans and Asians as well. I mean, we're also guilty of racist behavior. And so. What we see in the colonial situation, paralleling the racial situation in the United States, is that racism divides and conquers, and it gets people who have been subjected to parallel kinds of racism to act out against each other. That's a divide-and-conquer strategy. In colonization, we see the same thing, that colonization you know, is enacted against different kinds of colonized populations who should have an interest in solidarity with each other, but oftentimes turn against each other. And certainly we see that the French deliberately manipulate this. So if we look at Vietnam, Part of the French colonial army were colonized troops from Senegal and Morocco, for example, being brought into Vietnam to subjugate their fellow colonized peoples. And they didn't see, some of them, the relationships of solidarity. Some did, but not all of them. And so it's not a surprise that in France, in Paris, we would see people descended from colonized populations, not see themselves in solidarity, but see themselves in antagonism. And so the novel depicts this and it depicts a hope. That we could rise to solidarity as well as our as our uh, sympathizer says, but it's a very difficult task to work against the weight of history and the weight of colonization that's, that's designed to prevent us from seeing the necessary solidarity of colonized peoples against their colonizer.
1: And one of the the scenes that really s- stuck in my mind, and you you, you captured a, a body of academic literature on being black in France in, in the space of a couple of sentences, is when the the narrator is talking to um, some African American jazz musicians at a party, and uh, he impresses them with his English, and they're happy to speak English with them, and then they say, "Oh, you know, they, yes, but they speak French," and they say, "Well, we speak, you know, we speak French, but all, around the white people, we speak broken French." so that they know we're African American and they'll treat us well but if they if we speak proper french and they uh they'll think we're uh we're from africa and then we'll get treated poorly and i thought that really touched on so many things about blackness in france in the 20th century you know the 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 country that shielded josephine baker and james baldwin from the horrors of jim crow yet um you know behaved horribly to the algerian population and to the sub-Saharan Francophone population within its borders. And that was really, I mean, just that quick little aside, and it's not even a full scene, just like summarized a a really important body of literature. Um, You've been really generous with your time, and I've got two more questions before I let you go. Um, And the first one is going to come with a caveat. Um, We ask this of of every guest, but can you suggest... uh, two books, uh, for the audience to read. However, I'm going to put some restrictions on you because you're pretty good at tweeting out good books. So you're not allowed to suggest Charles Yu's interior Chinatown or, um, um uh, Laurent Binet's the seventh function of language, uh, which everybody should read. They're fantastic books. One's, uh, one, one is really, a Fellow Traveler, The Sympathizer, and the other one's A Fellow Traveler of The Committed. So two books other than those two that sure. you think the audience should read. Well, The
2: Seventh Function of Language is a very entertaining novel, and I read it while I was writing The Committed, and it was one kind of influence for that book. But okay, so outside of those books, well, given our, our conversation about colonization and so on, I'm, I'm going to recommend two books of poetry, uh, because poetry was actually a big influence in the writing of these two books. You know, There's a lot of playfulness, hopefully, with language, and there's an intensity of language that I want to achieve. That obviously poets take as a routine matter, but in the world of fiction, maybe not, maybe not so much. Uh, so Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem is, you know, she's a Native, Native American poet. And the, the title signals that, you know, she, what she's interested in, what, what she's interested in is this colonizing relationship of the United States to its indigenous, uh, to indigenous peoples. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, uh, very graceful, but also very uh, political at the same time. And then Don Mi Choi's uh, DMZ Colony. Um, you know she, she's a poet, uh, Korean American poet, who characterizes herself as engaged in anti-colonial poetics, which I think I'm hopefully aspiring to do as well. And in DMZ Colony. Also a beautiful book. She takes on this question of the Korean War, which has never ended and its aftermath and the devastating consequences for the Korean people, especially when we think about how it was not just Americans killing Koreans, but it was Koreans killing Koreans and not just even North versus South, but like South Koreans killing other South Koreans whom they suspected of being communists. And she calls Syngman Rhee, the leader of the uh, the Republic of Korea, the South Korea at the time, the American-backed angel of genocide. Um, and so it's very forceful. Forceful book, but also beautifully written book as well.
1: Yeah, and and yes, you do take a poetic license with the the word, and especially in the committed. And I really enjoyed it. It reminded me a bit of um, was it Saffron, Saffron Fowler's first novel, um, the one about the Ukraine and anti-Semitism. Um, everything is illuminated, and the way in which um, all of a sudden words on the page start to do unexpected things. And, um, as, you know, as a reader, it's just an absolute delight. Um, finally, what are you working on now? What can you hope to see from you next? And, um, I don't know, will there be a third novel in this cycle?
2: Uh, so what I'm working on now is a nonfiction book. You know, it's, it's, it's memoristic, um, drawing from, you know, the personal autobiography that I've spent most of my life avoiding. Uh, but you know, I've been writing increasingly personal autobiographical essays. Uh, and so, a lot of those stories are going to, are in the book, but also looped in or woven in with a lot of what we talked about today in terms of the fact that, you know, I'm interested in making critiques about culture and politics and representation and race and, and America and colonization. All that stuff will be woven in with the personal story. Um, and then after I'm done with that, hopefully later this year, I can turn my attention to the third and final installment of the sympathizer trilogy where he will in fact return to Southern California of the mid to late 1980s. And this is my time, you know, this is my adolescence and there's so much I want to talk about everything from Reagan to star Wars, both the movie and the, and the, you know, missile initiative and, uh, Iran Contra. And, uh, the fact that the CIA was pumping supposedly, you know, crack cocaine into South central Los Angeles, all of that is going to be, hopefully woven into a story of
1: the sympathizer coming back to make amends and seek revenge. Fantastic. I look forward to that. Um, Vitan went thank you so much for speaking with me today.
2: Hey, Mike, it was great talking to you again. You do, in fact, look like the department chair of oriental studies in the sympathizer. So hopefully we can get you in to a TV adaptation or at least someone who looks like you.
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't. I don't know if you wanted to reference that, but you did tweet that um, it's been optioned, and uh, I immediately. Re- uh, I'm, I'm a reply guy, so I said, "I want the role of the Department General Oriental Studies." That would, for me, that would be a very cathartic uh, uh, role because to act out some of the things I've had to deal with over the years. So keep keep me in you mind. Do. Put me in your role. Absolutely. This. So, so this has been a conversation with Professor Viet Thanh Nguyen about his novels, "The Sympathizer" and "The Committed." I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.
0: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.